Hello everyone, my name is Amber Johnson and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. This podcast will explore a gamut of topics from COVID-19 and immunity to social determinants of health and health equity to mental health. The goal of this podcast is to answer the questions of those in the general public and also get people that are inquisitive about the field of public health excited about the topics that we have to discuss in the fields of public health and medicine alike. We are so delighted that you all are here to join us on this journey of the Public Health Me podcast. We would like to thank you so much for your support of this podcast, and we hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining the Public Health Me podcast for the second half of season two. I'm so delighted to have Dr. Angela Holliday-Bell here with me, who is a board-certified clinical sleep specialist, and she's also a board-certified physician. She's originally from Chicago, Illinois, and she resides in the Washington, D.C. metro area, where she provides her sleep services and practices as a physician. She's always had a love for sleep, and after she started to suffer from insomnia, During her medical training, she realized just how important sleep was to living a happy and productive life. As she started to hear her patients, family members, and friends also complain about their sleep, she knew that there was a bigger issue and that she wanted to help address this problem. So thank you so much, Dr. Holiday Bell, for being here to talk to us today. Thank you so much for having me. I literally jump at any opportunity to talk about sleep. As I'm sure you guys could guess, it's literally one of my favorite subjects. So I am happy anytime I can chat more about it. We love it. And something that we don't talk about often enough, because it's something that we're constantly immersing ourselves in for eight to whatever hours, you know, for some people might be four to eight hours, you know, the range a day. So we have to think about the fact that this is a huge portion of our lives that we put on the back burner and it really affects our overall well-being. Absolutely. Like, just as you said, if you think about it, we spend a third of our lives for some people more, for me, definitely more sleeping. And it's something that we just don't talk about. And unfortunately has become a significant issue within our communities and the world, even um, lack of sleep that is. And for some reason, people just, you know, go on about their day struggling, not as happy or healthy as they could be. And so I'm happy to open up that conversation anytime we can and help people who are struggling to get good sleep. That is fantastic. So as you all may have already noticed, we're talking about sleep. The theme of today's episode is don't hit the snooze button on sleep. And the goal of this episode is really to answer how important is sleep in our daily lives and our body's regulatory processes. So I want to jump into the topic of what is a circadian rhythm and how does it affect our daily lives? Ah, That's a great question. So the circadian rhythm is our biological clock. And what's interesting about it and what what I feel like a lot of people don't know, and I actually didn't realize until I started to, you know, train to be a certified sleep specialist, is that every single cell in our body works on a circadian rhythm. For humans, every animal, every species has a circadian rhythm. For humans, that's a little bit longer than a 24-hour period of time in which we have certain bodily processes and functions that happen throughout each of those 24 hours. And so some things happen in in one part of that uh, segment, other things function more optimally in another part. And so it really controls everything from digestion to energy levels. We most connected with sleep, but it really affects all the functioning of our bodies. We think about our circadian rhythm as it uh, relates to sleep, longer than 24 hour period in which we naturally feel this awakeness and alertness generally in the early morning hours. We have a kind of mid afternoon, kind of slump in which most people feel tired. Usually it correlates to like after lunch or like that early afternoon period. And then a period of time at night where you feel sleepy and most likely to go to sleep. You have like melatonin release, which is our natural kind of sleep inducing hormone that's released at a certain time based on your circadian rhythm. So it's actually super important in regulating all your functions and specifically sleep. That's really like, I love that overview because I think that so many people realize or think that the circadian rhythm just has to do with sleep and thinking about it on like a microbiological kind of aspect is a huge thing and how it plays a huge role in our cellular processes, which gets us down to a deeper level of, wow, we have to actually regulate this 
in order for our body to be functional, not just, you know, functional sometimes, but actually being able to live and live fully. Exactly. And I think function optimally is the key. And that's, I love that, that phrase. And that's really what I like to hone in on when I talk to people like, oh, I can, I can function without sleep. I can function on three hours. Like, are you functioning optimally? Like, yeah, you can get by, but are you living optimally? Do you have the optimal energy, the optimal mood? Like there are so many ways we can optimize this if we are going along and functioning with our internal circadian rhythms and all of our biological processes. Again, like even something as simple as digestion, there's a certain time during the day where your body is better at digesting foods. And there are certain times of night where some of us may eat where our body is less effective at digesting food and that can interfere with things like sleep and energy and other functions of your body. So it's really aligning everything with your circadian rhythm so that you have that optimal functioning. That is really important. I know so many people that will eat after seven o'clock and then they're like, I want to be in bed by 10 or 11. Well, I don't know how well that's going to work for you. If you know, (laughs) your body's still trying to digest, it still has, you know, fuel because the whole purpose of eating is to provide your body with energy and fuel. Then you're energizing your body and then you're trying to shut it down. So it's like, you're working, you know, as like an oxymoron in that case. Exactly. Exactly. hundred percent. So the next thing I really want to get into is behaviors that will interfere with the body's circadian rhythm, i.e. like caffeine, diet pills, et cetera, those types of things. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is the behavior that we probably engage in that interferes with our circadian rhythm the most is our light dark cycles. So the strongest influencer of your circadian rhythm is light. And it works in both a positive and negative way in that in the mornings, when you should be up, when you're, when the processes in your circadian rhythm that are keeping you sleep are decreased so that you're more likely to be awake, you should actually be exposed to light. One of the best things you can do is get outside, get some natural sunlight because that hits your retina. It goes to your brain and the areas that influence the circadian rhythm and say, okay, it's time to be awake. It's time to be alert. It's time to have more energy. Conversely at night and not just when it's time to go to sleep, Long before that, in the evening hours, you should have less light. You should have even the bright overhead lights should be lower. You should refrain from using electronics because you're still getting that same light. And specifically, the blue wavelength of light really affects your circadian rhythm. And that sends the same signal of, oh, it's time to be awake, time to be alert, hold on the melatonin because it's light. So that means we need to be awake and alert. And that decreases the melatonin release and it makes it less likely that you'll fall asleep and and be sleepy at the time that you want to. So the biggest, biggest thing, the biggest contributor to really reinforcing your circadian rhythm is getting the right light dark cycles. So for me, I, in the mornings, I try to open up my blinds, open up the curtains, get some sunlight in. It will be great if I, if you could go on a walk, I don't necessarily have the, the time to do that, but that would be excellent. But then at night, I actually have like dimmers all throughout my house and two hours before bed, lights are low. We keep everything low because I need to signal to my brain. It's time for us to wind down. It's time to start that melatonin release so that when it's time for me to go to sleep, I can, you know, peacefully drift off to sleep, into sleep. The other thing is, so as I mentioned, the skating rhythm, we say it's about, we'll, we'll say 24 hours. It's like 24 hours and 15 minutes for most people, but let's say 24 hours. The best way to really enforce and set your circadian rhythm is by going to sleep at the same time every night and waking up at the same time every day. Because you want all of your bodily processes to really function on a similar daily schedule. Same thing with meals, trying to eat around the same time, trying to exercise around the same time. That really helps your body to function in its best because it knows what to expect each time and throughout the day. When you go to sleep at different times, like for a lot of people on weekends, go to sleep hours, three to four hours later than they do on weekdays, you're really shifting what your body is expecting and shifting all of the processes that have been set to happen at a certain time. So during the week, your body's like, okay, it's 9 p.m. We're going to start releasing that melatonin. We're winding down. We're in bed by 10. That still starts to happen. It's like, oh, wait a minute. We're not, we're not going to bed. Oh, there's these bright lights and it's harder to set that. So effectively, you're actually putting your body through like a jet lag. So it's almost like you're traveling across time zones when you change the timing of you falling asleep and the timing of those functions. And just like jet lag, where it takes a couple of days for your body to recover because it's trying to figure out what timing everything should be on, it's really the same thing. So you have a lot of sluggishness, decreased energy and all those things because your body is trying to adjust to these new hours at this new time zone. So really the best thing that you can do is go to sleep at the same time each night, wake up at the same time each morning, get bright light in the mornings, decrease ambient light in the evening. 
Wow. That's really, really important. And I don't think a lot of people know that. That probably explains why most of us can't get it together on Monday morning because we've spent a whole weekend doing whatever. And now we're like trying to get it together and wake up at 730 or before and go to work and be bright and sunshiny. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Exactly. You have thrown off your whole rhythm and the body's like, wait, okay, hold on. Now we're, we're going back and it takes a couple of days to adjust. And then by the time you get a hang of it, it's a weekend again. <laughs> and then you kind of do it all over. So it's just really hard to catch up when you do it. Wow. That's a huge deal. And I'm glad that you pointed that out to people because I think so many people forget about that. And we're, especially as busy women or just busy people in general, we're constantly on the go, whether you're doing school work, you're up late charting in your case, possibly, or, you know, reading or studying or doing various other things. We find it so hard for us to say, okay, I'm going to shut down at a certain time. And then the next day we're like, oh, I'm so like tired. And then now I have to caffeinate. Now I have to, you know, interfere with all of these processes and, you know, synthetically do these things instead of allowing our bodies to actually give us what we need. A hundred percent. You brought up a great point. So that, that is absolutely true. I think that a lot of people have this misconception that I need to stay up later so I can get more done. But then you stay up late, you have poor sleep, you're tired and inefficient the next day. So you're actually getting less done. It's so always say if you are optimally rested, you are more efficient, so you can get more work done. You, you are better at every task that you're completing if you're well-rested than if you're not. So yes, staying up four hours means four more hours of work, but you could have did that four hours and two hours if you were well-rested. So I say, no matter what it is you have to do, it's actually important to prioritize your sleep because that's going to help you function better in every facet of life. If you're tired, you're grouchy, you're snappy, you're more emotional, you're, you're slower, and there have been many of experiments and tests done on people who are sleep deprived versus uh, well rested. And it shows that your, your hand-eye coordination is slower, your task performance is slower, and it'll have those same people complete tasks when they're rested. And it's much better. Your memory is better. Your focus is better. Your mood is better. And so you're just a better you when you're rested. So instead of feeling like you can't get enough done, give yourself that sleep so that you can function more optimally the next day. And as you mentioned too, a lot of times you're making up for that by, okay, now I'm going to drink all this caffeine. I'm going to take all these pills. And now you're further messing up your circadian rhythm and making it harder to fall asleep again the next day. So you're just getting behind and making things worse. So really the best thing you can do is to optimize your sleep. That will help you optimize all of your functions naturally. Wow. I love that. I think it's super, super important. I'm such a, I think I'm very culpable of not practicing what I preach in that sleep area. I always tell people go to sleep, make sure you get some rest. And I'm like burning the midnight oil. But now as you know, my life has gotten crazier and things have gotten busier. I find myself falling asleep at like 1130. Whereas I used to go to bed at like 2am, wake up at seven and do it constantly. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm getting a little bit older and maybe this is just not working for me anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to be the same way until I couldn't anymore. And like I said, that's what brought me to the, you know, sleep specialty. There was a time that I was like, this is not working. And now I'm completely like, everything stops for me at 9 p.m. I do my sleep routine. I'm in bed by 10, period. Everything else can wait. We'll get to it tomorrow. One of the most interesting things is a lot of people will take like hot baths and showers and everything like that before bed. And one of the craziest things for me is that showers actually wake me up. I have no idea what it is about that. Can you explain some of the, you know, metabolic processes behind that? Or if there's anything that, you know, people can kind of hint at or what time to take a shower so that they're not like wide awake? Yeah. So it's very interesting in that Generally, we actually recommend a hot shower or warm bath before bed. The reason is that your body temperature has to drop by one to two degrees before you fall asleep. That's just like naturally for everyone that has to happen. It sounds counterintuitive, but when you take a hot shower or a hot bath, you warm your body up and then it has to drop the temperature. It has to drop its internal temperature to cool you back off afterwards. So it actually facilitates that process and for most people makes it easier to fall asleep. For some though, that's not the case and you remain at a higher temperature. And so it just takes longer for you to drop your temperature. It can make you more awake. A similar phenomenon occurs with exercise. So exercise across the board is good for sleep. hundred percent is a great thing you can do. However, if you exercise too close to bed, you actually release endorphins when you exercise and endorphins make you feel good. They give you energy, they make you feel awake. So if you do it too close to bedtime, then it can interfere with sleep 
for a lot of people. For me personally, exercise before sleep is great. Exercise makes me tired and sleepy. I don't know why I actually have this like, yeah, the, even in the mornings of exercise, I get very sleepy afterwards. So I can exercise and actually sleep the best right after I do that. But for a lot of people, it's too activating. So there are kind of general principles, but it really will vary between individuals. So I always tell people to experiment with what works for you. Try exercising early in the morning. If that doesn't work for you, try in the afternoon, try in the evening. Same thing with the showers. Try shower right before bed. If you realize, nope, that doesn't do it for me, it wakes me up, then do it in the morning because that's another way to, you know, make you more awake and give you energy. So there are some general principles, but everybody's built a little bit differently. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate that. One of the next things that I wanted to talk about is our external environment. And I know that there are certain places in the world that it's daylight all the time. So what happens with those individuals or people that use blackout curtains or people that are wearing sunglasses at night or indoors? How are we really affecting our body cycles by living in these places or doing these activities? Yeah. So, you know, just as I said, light is the strongest influencer of the circadian rhythm and it makes a huge impact on not only your circadian rhythm, your functioning, your mental and physical health when you don't have the right light dark cycles. So for instance, in Alaska, where they have these months and months of darkness and months and months of it being very light, what you actually see is a lot of people, especially during the months of darkness, go through significant depression. The depression and suicide rates are much higher, uh, unfortunately, in those parts of the country. And then in addition, they have issues sleeping when it comes to uh, being bright outside all the time. And that's because you're disrupting that circadian rhythm. And again, the circadian rhythm is uh, important to every facet of your functioning. And if you're not sleeping, insomnia or insufficient sleep in and of itself is a risk factor for depression, anxiety, and mental health issues in addition to the darkness alone. So unfortunately, there are a lot of, there is a lot of dysregulation that occurs if you don't have the right light dark cycles. So there is a place for, a place and time for it to be light. There's a place and time for it to be dark. And you really do need that balance. In addition, even in places where it's not it's not as significant. You have seasonal affective disorder that some people go through in that when it's winter time and it gets dark earlier, especially for people who may work early and then come home late and they don't really get to see the light, same thing. You see a lot more um, like depression and things like that because of the, the lack of light. So ideally, especially if you have a, a schedule like that, try your best even at work to kind of get some light because that really helps to reinforce things. The other thing is, what we do at home to, to kind of help regulate light and dark cycles is super important too. So I'm an advocate for blackout curtains for sure. Use when it's evening and dark and during the day, open them up. I actually have like two layers of blackout curtains and like no light comes through my room at night. But when it's a morning, it needs to be pulled to the side. You need to have that light. I think one interesting thing has been the blue light glasses phenomenon that has recently become popularized. And again, they're excellent. Blue light is the strongest wavelength of light that affects your circadian rhythm. And so it is actually helpful to use blue light glasses to filter out that light. So especially if you have like dimmers or things at home, putting on blue light glasses two hours before bed to help filter out that light, perfect. Signals to your body, let's release that melatonin, let's you know calm down and wind down before bed. The problem is places have started to incorporate that into normal eyeglasses and into sunglasses or people started to wear them all day. And again, we found that this had led to more depression and things like that because people were blocking out that light when you need that during the day. You want that blue light. That helps to awaken you and to give you energy. So definitely great to uh, block out and filter that light at night, turn off lights at night, use the blackout curtains at night. But remember, we need that during the day. Like that, we don't want our melatonin to be released all day. So you want to make sure that you're not filtering out that light, that you're actually getting sunlight during the day. And that's the best way to help regulate your cycles. Oh, thank you so much for that. I never even knew that. Even in my prescription glasses, you think, oh, because you're constantly looking at screens that you need that blue light filter. And a lot of times, like I can see without my glasses, but I'll take them on and off. And I notice that sometimes like my eyes are either more tired or less tired, yeah. depending on, you know, whether I'm wearing them or not. So that's a really important point, And we appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people don't recognize that. And I'm like, no, don't. they're great, but only in the evenings. Do not wear them during the day because you want that light. You need that to give you the extra energy. Yes, that's super important. So on to our next topic about how um, lack of sleep, we kind of touched on this already, how it can affect our mental and physical health. 
Yeah. So to touch on mental health quickly, because, you know, I, I've referenced that before, but just like to give some statistics, those who suffer from insomnia or insufficient sleep are two to four times more likely to suffer from depression. And in some instances, four to five times more likely to suffer from anxiety. And the reason for that we think is that the amygdala is the emotional center in your brain. And when you're sleeping, a lot of regulatory processes happen with your amygdala. So your frontal cortex is a part of your brain that is involved in all the ex executive functioning. So it's involved in like putting the brakes on things, saying go, like all of your kind of fine tuning of things, everything that you do, movement and everything else. That talks to your amygdala while you're sleeping. When you're not sleeping, you lose that conversation. You, you lose that regulation. And so you're more likely to have dysregulation of all of the neurotransmitters and things that are produced in that area. So basically, you're just literally not able to control your emotions as much when you're not getting sleep. When you are sleepy, you're more likely to be irritable. You're more likely to uh, have a low fuse. Like, you, you know, things bother you more because you haven't had that regulatory process happening in your emotional control centers. And so it's super, super important that you get sleep. Physically, same thing. Oh my gosh, so many physical processes happen while you're sleeping. And if you think about it, this is a time that your brain doesn't have to focus on everything else, on you moving your arms, you walking around, you exercising, you eating, like all of those things take a lot of energy and time. And when you're sleeping, your brain can just focus on cleaning out debris, on strengthening synapses and, and the regulatory systems. And so if you are, if you're skimping on your sleep, you're just losing that time that your brain needs to do those things. So for instance, there were studies that were done on groups of patients one, some who had sufficient sleep, so they slept seven plus hours, and then some who had insufficient sleep, which was just defined as less than seven hours of sleep per night. They then exposed them to the rhinovirus, which is the virus that causes the common cold. And those who slept less than seven hours per night were more, were two to three times as likely to develop symptoms of a cold than those who slept well. And that's because at night, the antibodies, the cytokines, all of the things that your body produces to help you fight off infection are revved up when you're sleeping. Think about it. When you have the flu, when you're sick, you all you want to do is sleep. You want to sleep more. And that's because that's when those processes happen. So if you're not sleeping, you are making yourself more susceptible to sickness, to illness. You're actually less likely to respond to vaccines when you're not getting enough sleep, which is a hot topic right now. So similar studies have been done on groups of patients who have got sufficient sleep. Some who got insufficient sleep. This was actually done with the hepatitis B vaccine. And it found that antibody levels three months after the vaccine were 11 times higher in those who got good sleep afterwards compared to those who got insufficient sleep. Same kind of thing. You're, the antibodies and everything are produced more when you're sleeping, and it's really important. In addition, your cardiovascular health suffers when you're not getting enough sleep. So you're more likely to have high blood pressure, cardiovascular events in general. There have been some links between insomnia and diabetes. And, you know, there are sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea that definitely lead to something called pulmonary hypertension, other things down the line. So literally every part of your body, every facet of your physical and mental health are affected by poor sleep. You're more likely to have injury in sports activities if you're not getting sleep, which is why athletes, athletic teams, professional teams, they actually pay professional sleep consultants to tell their athletes how to sleep better because they know they perform better. They're less likely to get injured. They have more energy, all those things. So literally it's easier for me to tell you what sleep doesn't affect, which I don't think that there is anything than what it does affect in your body. Wow. That's a huge deal. And I think it's really important. I was just thinking about while you were talking about how many people that have been working from home for the last few years and the fact that a lot of people are not getting a lot of sleep. They're mm -hmm. pushing their hours at work because you don't have really this buffer time of travel. I have to go get the kids. I have to go do this or let the dog out, those kinds of things. So you see them burning the midnight oil and they're trying to go to bed and you have less functionality for individuals. So I think that it would be a very interesting study to see how the pandemic has affected, you know, people's sleep cycles and their overall health. And has that led to people being more susceptible to various illnesses such as COVID or something like that? I think that that would be interesting to see if the data hasn't been collected already on something like that. Absolutely. I agree. There is a, a term that we coined in the sleep world called COVID somnia. And it's because of all the things you just said. So many people working from home, they don't have their routine, their blurred lines, they're staying up late, 
we're binge watching Netflix all night. We're waking up at crazy times in the morning and it's really affecting sleep. And you would think that like, oh, I don't have to get up in the morning at any particular time. I don't have to drive to work. I should be getting more sleep. But really we're seeing the opposite. And I think, yeah, I think it actually be super interesting if we had the data on illness and all those things after, you know, after this pandemic, hopefully ends at some point and how like lack of sleep may affect that. I think, I think we would see that there is a significant increase, unfortunately. Oh, definitely. And I think because so many people are at home, they fall victim to working from their beds, you know, just pulling your laptop out and just working right from your bed. But then you realize when I've been told that if you are in your bed longer, then it affects your body's ability to kind of like differentiate between should I be asleep or should I be awake kind of thing? Is there any truth to that? A hundred thousand percent. So that's one of the first things I tell my my sleep consultant clients that I work with is your bed should be used for sleep and adult activities only, nothing else. So not no watching TV, no Netflixing, no eating, no talking on the phone, definitely no work. And that's because you want your bed to be so connected to sleep that as soon as you get in it, your mind is like, oh, this is where we sleep and you fall asleep. If you're working, if you're watching TV, if you're doing, as soon as you get in the bed, you might say, okay, what do we do now? Are we going to talk? Are we eating? Like it doesn't connect it. You dilute the relationship that your mind has with your bed and sleep. And you want to strengthen that so much that that is one of the main kind of motivators for you to fall asleep is literally just seeing your bed. To that end, similarly, even if you're trying to go to sleep, if that is your intention, but you can't. So if you're lying in bed for more than 15 minutes, you can't fall asleep. You should get up and out of your bed and do something else. Same thing. You actually get this learned anxiety around falling asleep and with your bed if you spend too much time in bed trying to fall asleep. So people say, oh, I get into the bed at nine, but I can't fall asleep until midnight. So for three hours, I'm laying in my bed trying to force myself to go to sleep. If we could just like will ourselves to sleep, the world would be a much better place. And I wouldn't have this part of my job. And I think that things would be a lot easier, but unfortunately it doesn't work like that. So all you do is teach your brain that this is where we stress and get anxious about falling asleep. So some people can start off sleepy, dead tired. And as soon as they get into their bed, it's so activating that now they're alert, they're awake, their heart is beating quickly. They get very anxious because your mind has learned this is where we become anxious. This is where we spend three hours of our night every night being anxious. And so that connection is very strong. You have to break that. So get up. Go to a different room, do some kind of lazy sleep-inducing activity, read a book, fold laundry, do something like that. When you get sleepy again, get into the bed because now you want your mind to say, oh, I'm sleepy. That means bed as opposed to being awake and anxious and alert. That is an excellent point. That is the story of my life. I used to be in bed for like, people would say, oh, go to bed early. I'm like, I literally can't go to sleep until I'm exhausted. If it's not until one o'clock in the morning or whatever time, you know, I'm exhausted. That's when I'll often get in the bed because I'm not just going to sit there and just flounder for hours on end, because then that's going to make me more apt to be on my phone, be on social media, start thinking about things, start texting people, doing all kinds of things that I should not be doing in the bed, you know, that's going to keep me awake. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, people have this misconception that, oh, I I have insomnia and I can't fall asleep, so I'm going to go to sleep early. And then you stay up in bed awake longer. Then you try to go to sleep early the next night, and then you say, <laughs> long as long it is this vicious cycle, and it, it's understandable that you feel like that. Okay, that's that's a fix. That's what I need to do. But it literally, insomnia is more of a psychological thing than anything else, and so it's really about retraining your brain that the bed is for sleep, and then putting those healthy practices into place to get you to that point sooner and at your desired bedtime. But if you're not there at your desired bedtime, don't go to bed until you're sleepy. Do the things that should make you sleepy. Keep the lights low. Stay off of electronics an hour before bedtime. Use your blue light filtering glasses. Go out. Like do the things that help to induce the sleepiness in you. But if you're not sleepy by that time, don't go to bed because you literally will just start a cycle that's so hard to break. I think you're speaking to pretty much 90% of the audience here when you're talking about this, because so many people, we're always wanting to be on our devices. We're always wanting to keep our brains so active and wonder why we can't sleep, wonder why we can't function throughout the day, why we're so snappy and various other things. A lot of it really can be mitigated by doing what we need to do in our beds and going to sleep. And making sure that we can stay asleep and have a restful night because there can, there can be a difference between, you know, you actually falling asleep and then you waking up three or four times a night. 
And then you're getting those breaks in sleep that can maybe possibly happen during REM or various other cycles that may cause you to be more exhausted. Exactly. A hundred percent. And that goes to your sleep quality. So there are two things that affect your sleep overall and how rested and energized you feel the next day. And that's sleep quantity, which is just a sheer number of hours of sleep you get and the sleep quality. How are you cycling through those normal sleep cycles? How much deep sleep are you getting, which is that restorative kind of sleep. If you're sleeping eight hours, but you're in the lighter stages, it's broken, you're waking up, then you're not going to feel as rested and as energized as even if you get six hours of deep restful sleep. So it's really about balancing both. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And to roll into um, the next question, you mentioned like the amount of hours of sleep that people are supposed to get per per evening. So what would you suggest? How many hours people are supposed to receive per day and per week? So people can have a broad overview of, am I doing this or am I really falling short of this actual goal (laughs) per week? Yeah. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about the recommended number of hours of sleep is that it it varies by individual. So I always say sleep need is like shoe size. There's an average shoe size. Like, I don't know, the average woman wears a size seven or something, average man a 10. But some women wear a size six through 12. And, you know, there's a range for men too. So there is no one size fits all. And I, I recommend that individuals find what their sleep need is. So the average ends up being somewhere around seven to eight hours. If I get seven hours of sleep, I'm cranky. I am not well rested. It is not a good night for me. I know that I need nine and a half hours of sleep to feel rested. That is my sleep need. And so I always tell people, don't go by that because you could be, you could be thinking like, I'm getting seven hours. It should be enough, but no, it's not enough for you. So I say your sleep need is the amount of sleep that is required for you to feel rested throughout the day, functioning optimally with enough energy to complete your daily tasks without the use of additional substances such as caffeine whatever that is for you. And that may take some experimentation. For some people, they only need six hours. My husband is actually a short sleeper and I'm a long sleeper. So that's interesting. He only needs six hours. He's resting, he's awake, he's fine. I need the nine and a half. For some people, it can be hard. Like if you've been sleep deprived for a long time and your body's trying, trying to make up for it, it can be hard to kind of set that number. So I recommend taking a sleepcation, like a sleep vacation where your only goal and task is to sleep. Get rid of distractions, like literally take a week where you are just trying to sleep. For some people, they may even mean going to a hotel. Don't set an alarm. Let your body sleep as as much as it naturally will. For the first few nights, for most people, they're sleeping off sleep debt. So if you are someone who has not been getting enough sleep for a while, your body will try to catch up on that. But after about three days or so, if you are following the natural kind of light, dark cycles, you're, you're not having distractions, you're not setting an alarm, your body will start to sleep the amount of time it needs to feel rested. And so if you're able to do that, that is the amount of sleep that you need. And that's the amount of sleep that you should aim for on a nightly basis. That's a really great point. And thank you so much for making it. I remember in my early twenties, I was able to do function off of four hours of sleep and then, you know, go to bed at three and then wake up for my organic chemistry class for 8am, you know, and sit in this big lecture hall. But now if I go off of four hours of sleep, my gosh, I am cranky. I can't get myself together. You start slurring your words. You're like running into things and you're like, am I drunk right now? Like what is happening? But you really, your body is really functioning this way because you are not getting enough sleep and it's not had enough time to really do its metabolic processes and everything that it needs to do while you're asleep. Exactly. Exactly. That's hundred percent true. They say if you are up 18 hours or more, you are the equivalent of being drunk. So like your body's functioning and your ability to function is actually equivalent to someone who is strong. Wow. Which is very sad. We think about doctors and trainings and we do 24 hour shifts, it's like that, which is not ideal. Unfortunately, the medical community has not caught up with the science in that regard. But yeah, like you, like you said, your body is literally functioning as if it's intoxicated because you have not shut things down and given your, your brain and body a chance to recover Wow. Could you imagine if we actually practice what we preached in that area, how much better, first of all, not only our outcomes would be, but patient outcomes and various other things that are linked to people running off of low fuel. And I've even seen now, of course, where they're capping residence hours and the older physicians are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is that about? Like we used to function off of like whatever, 80 hours and stuff like that in one week or more. And now people are doing less 
they're like, whoa, what's happening? But do you not realize that there's such a correlation between patient mortality and all kinds of other things that could be linked to lack of sleep? You're not able to make decisions as quickly. Your, your reaction time, as you indicated, is a lot slower. So why would we do that, you know? Exactly. I wouldn't want a drunk person in charge of my health <laughs> in the hospital. So I don't want someone who hasn't been sleeping 24 hours in charge of me. But it's one of those age-old things that they made small changes. Like you said, they went from the, well, you can work as many hours as we say to the restriction is actually 80 hours per week is the restriction. So there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of room to, to grow in that area. But I think I think as more data comes out, I think if we were to study it a little bit more and especially linked to patient outcomes, that would help. I do think it'll be a slow process, but I do think for sure it's something that needs to change. Absolutely. I'll add that to my dissertation list for, you know, whenever, (laughs) when it comes around, I'll get to that for sure. So we can improve these outcomes for people. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is if you have things like insomnia, I know that you mentioned that people insomnia is more psychological, but I know that people will use sleep aids like melatonin and chamomile tea and various other things. Would you not recommend those things? Or what would you say about people using those processes to kind of help them out? Yeah. So I think that there, there is a time and place for certain supplements that I think can be beneficial in the journey of curing insomnia. Let me start by separating prescription sleep medicine from some of your natural supplements. I think you should never take prescription sleep medicines. I think they're actually awful. I think they disrupt your sleep. I think they're not helpful and they become habit forming. So as I mentioned before, we have sleep quantity and sleep quality and both are very important and arguably quality is more important than quantity. When you take sleep pills, you are likely to get a a higher quantity of sleep. So if you were sleeping four hours, you take sleep pill, maybe you'll get five or six. The problem is it puts you in a sedative state. So we also know about the about sedation. It's like when you go under for a procedure and they give you anesthesia, you're not sleeping, you're sedated. And sleep is a very defined process that takes you through defined stages that each have their own function. When you're sedated, you are not going through the defined stages of sleep. So for most people, when they take those sleep medications, although they may get a little bit more quantity of sleep. They wake up feeling groggy. Some people worse than they felt before. They don't feel alert. They don't feel energized. They're not getting the the benefits of sleep because they're not going through the sleep stages. And it becomes habit for me because they think in my mind, well, I'm getting more sleep. So this must be good. So let me continue to take this. Then they need more of the medication to even get to that same number. And it just becomes a cycle and this habit. And it's not actually achieving the goal that they want to achieve. So I say, stay away from sleep medications altogether. Now, with that being said, most insomnia is this psychological and behavioral, a group of psychological and behavioral processes that have likely happened over time that we have kind of reinforced through habits and trying to make up for other things that has led to the state of insomnia. And the way that we fix it is through psychological and behavioral changes. It takes work, it takes time, but that's the best way to have long lasting benefits. So I practice something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Some people may be aware of that for things like anxiety, depression. It's where you take thoughts and behaviors surrounding this process and you change little by little over time until you overhaul the process and make it better, resolve it, cure it, whatever. So that is the best way to fix insomnia. And I always try to put those things into place first before we add on any supplements because that is going to be the foundation. Now, some supplements can be helpful. My favorite supplement for sleep is actually magnesium, magnesium glycinate in particular. Magnesium is a naturally occurring mineral that you find in lots of foods. A lot of us eat it through our foods. A lot of us may not get the amount that we require. What magnesium does is it's a, it's a cofactor for a neurotransmitter called GABA that slows everything down in the brain, relaxes you, and makes it easier to fall asleep. So all you're doing is facilitating the relaxing process of being able to transition into sleep in in a more natural way. So it's kind of like taking a multivitamin. I personally take magnesium every single day. It's so, it's beneficial not only for that, but other brain functions and processes. And I think it's just an excellent addition to any sleep routine. So that would be my number one. I think melatonin also has its place in that for some melatonin is helpful in, in helping people fall asleep. Like I said, we naturally produce melatonin in our brains before we go to sleep. 
And oftentimes it can make you feel, you know, sleepy enough to at least fall asleep. For some people, they still have the groggy feeling afterwards. So you have to, to do trial and error with what works for you. But I like to use it more as a backup. So if there are nights that you're saying, okay, I'm doing all the healthy things. I've, I've taken my magnesium. I've done my sleep routine. I've done all these things and I can't fall asleep. At least I know that I have a backup to use that will likely help. That is also more of a psychological thing, because if you know that you have a go-to that you can use, should you need it, it also puts your mind at rest saying that, you know, I can do this. And even if I can't, I have something else that will help. The key is to use the smallest effective dose. So people will take like 10 and 15 milligrams of melatonin, like don't do that. That's way too much. Physiologic melatonin is actually probably closer to like 0.3 milligrams of what we take supplementally. I say start with one milligram. That doesn't work, go to two milligrams. I actually would not go over five milligrams ever because you shouldn't need that much. And there are some studies that suggest that too much melatonin could actually have the opposite effect and for some people be an alerting thing. So have it, smallest dose that you need and only as a backup if you feel that you can't fall asleep. Otherwise, really rely on those routines, the behaviors, the thoughts that will help you to facilitate falling asleep and that you can use in the long term in case things come up again that disrupt your sleep. You are already equipped with those tools. Wow, that's so helpful. A lot of us think, oh, you know, I'll just take this, I'll do this and really put us put ourselves in the synthetic states of being able to sleep. And I think that it's really important for people to realize that you have to go through these stages of the sleep cycle in order for your body to effectively be able to do its job. And we often miss that because we caught, we're more so of a microwave society than an oven society. And I think that really becomes our downfall, especially in terms of our overall health and our, our disease processes. Could you imagine if people actually did what they were supposed to do, had the amount of sleep, had the amount of water that they're supposed to have. If people would have lesser, you know, incidence of disease than they do now or improved overall disease, whatever's going on with their disease at that time. I think that that would be really interesting. I don't know. It gets my like research mind going about (laughs) how so many of these things play into what we often do and how sick our society can be in terms of like overall, like poor health. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like literally when I talk about sleep and overall health, I say the three most important pillars of health are exercise, nutrition, and sleep. Like they all, all three are just as important as the other. They all go hand in hand to, to us functioning optimally. I meant to mention in the, I separated the prescription sleep medicines from some of the natural ones, but in this prescription sleep medicine, although it's not prescription, things like z or anything Z over the counter is also not great. Most of those things contain Benadryl and it's the same principle as the prescription sleep medicines. It makes you drowsy, but you're not getting that same quality of sleep. And so I say aim for quality first. Like when we're fixing, when I'm fixing sleep for my, my clients, we aim at quality first. I'd rather you get four solid quality hours of sleep than six broken hours of sleep because you're going to feel much better off of that four quality uh, hours of sleep than the six broken hours. And again, you'll get more of the health benefits from that. And then once we fix the quality, then we're able to work on quantity and kind of increasing it from that standpoint. But it's not, like you said, it's not all about this instant microwave society. What can be my quick fix, whatever. Okay. As long as it just gets me more up there because sleep is a much more robust process than that. And we really have to be intentional with the steps we take to fix it. That is such an important point. And I love the fact that you brought up medications that have Benadryl in them, especially for people that have like allergies like me. I took so much Benadryl in the earlier stages of my college career because I've, I had food allergies that were out of control and now I have a tolerance for Benadryl. So I can take 50 milligrams of Benadryl. My partner, he's like, why are you not asleep right now? I'm like dancing around the living room. And he's like, what is wrong with you right now? I was like, it does the opposite for me because Mm -hmm. I've reached this threshold and my body's like, okay, I mean, like we'll go to sleep, but we'll only sleep for like an hour or two. And then the rest of it is kind of like broken sleep and you're not really getting a good night's rest. Like you think you would with something that's sedative, like Benadryl. Exactly. A hundred percent, a hundred percent correct. So really one of the last topics that I want to talk about is building better sleep habits and how when we have bad sleep habits that have continued throughout most of our lives or throughout an extended period of time, is it possible to really quickly improve these habits or do we really need to take a bit more time to improve those habits? 
Yeah. So I think if you have chronic insomnia, chronic insomnia is defined three or more months of insufficient sleep, whatever insufficient sleep is for you, whether it's a lack of quality, lack of quantity, it is very difficult to fix quickly. Like you're not going to have a quick fix. It really is a process. However, you know, that process for some takes two to four weeks. For some, it takes upwards of six weeks for my cognitive behavioral therapy program. I usually take between five to six weeks for each of my patients. And then from there, they continue to implement things, but that's kind of the core of it. But you're going to spend the rest of your life sleeping for a third of it, if you're lucky. And so it's it's worth the investment of time to fix it now, because any little Band-Aid or quick fix is only going to make it harder to fix later. And it's only going to lead to more unhealthy, you know, outcomes because of that. So probably not a quick fix if you have chronic insomnia. There are some people that just have a few nights of bad sleep where they just have some poor sleep habits. And you can actually change that fairly quickly, depending on, you know, what those habits are. You know, I think it's worth implementing them, but understanding that it may take some time. I think in terms of what those habits are. So the first thing, as I said, my main two go to sleep at the same time each night wake up at the same time each day is the goal, right? Like we mentioned that if you're not sleepy, don't get into the bed, start your nighttime routine at the same night. That should be your goal, but then you may have to play around with what time you actually fall asleep. But by doing things at the same time, you are, you are making it likely that you'll fall asleep at your desired time each night. Subsequently, getting light during the day in the morning hours, keeping it dark at night. The other thing is having a consistent bedtime routine. So again, all of these things are psychological. You are training your brain to fall asleep at the same time. And the way you do that is by having things that you connect with sleep. Your bed should definitely be one of them, but I recommend having a 45 to 60 minute bedtime routine that you do every single night. So for some, it's being able to take hot showers if it's not too activating for you. Having a skincare routine, listening to some calming music, reading a book is an excellent thing to do before bed by like a little bedside lamp. Do the same thing each night keep the routine the same because what that does is the next time you go ahead and start that routine, everybody's like, oh, we're winding down. It's time to fall asleep. And it's going to connect that. This is a, this is what we do before we fall asleep. So let me prepare myself for sleep, right? Your body is all about making things easier and more efficient for you. Actually, we unfortunately do things that mess up that process, but that is what your body wants to do. It wants to connect things and make connections all throughout the day to make it easier for you. So just like being anxious in bed, everybody's like, oh, this is where we're anxious. Let's just skip to the anxious part. This is the same thing with the bedtime routine. Like, oh, this is this is what we do before we go to bed. Okay, cool. We're doing it the same night, same time each night. This is the time to go to bed. So consistent bedtime routine for a lot of people. I work with a lot of like women in general, like busy moms. I'm like, you have this as your me time. Like, don't look at it as, oh, I guess I got to like cut everything down. Like, this is your time that you give to yourself. Whatever relaxes you and makes you feel good, do that. Like, have it be something that you look forward to. And then implement that each night. I really like blackout curtains, as we talked about, or a blackout mask. Like I actually have a blackout mask that I wear every single night. I literally can't see anything. And then the mask that I use actually has Bluetooth headphones built in so I can listen to sleep meditations before I go to sleep. Again, connecting the routine. As soon as I hear that meditation, I'm out because my mind is like, oh, this is where we fall asleep. But also it gives you something to think about other than your anxieties, your worries and everything else. Like your, the meditations take you through deep breathing and things like that, that, that trigger your relaxation response and make it easier to fall asleep in addition to becoming a part of your routine that you're used to as well. So especially if anxiety and stress is a big problem, absolutely sleep meditation, deep breathing exercises. Like I think those things are, they work wonders to help with sleep. And then lastly, the big thing I would say besides getting out of bed when you can't fall asleep, even in the middle of the night, so you can't fall asleep at the beginning of the night, get out of bed. If you wake up and can't fall back asleep for 15 minutes, same thing. And then again, for a lot of people, anxiety, stress is a big factor in not being able to fall asleep. So I recommend keeping a worry journal that you do before bed. So before bedtime, it comes around, let's say you try to go to bed at nine, I would say no later than seven doing this because you want it separated from the act of falling asleep. But keep a journal that you write down all of your worries, whatever comes to your mind. So, oh, I have this big project at work tomorrow. I have to make this big dinner for family. This whatever comes to your mind, write it out. Write out the steps you're going to take to address it. So, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start prepping for it. Do those things. Just get everything out for 15 minutes. The reason you do this is because when you're laying down and those things start to surface, you can say, oh, I've, I've already dealt with that. I already, I already wrote this down. I got it out. I have a plan. And you have a time tomorrow for any new thing, anything new thing that comes up. Okay, I'll worry about that during my worry time tomorrow. That gives your brain a space to get it out 
that's not connected to bedtime, it makes it less likely that you'll have those worries and those stresses and those anxieties. So I actually think that that's a great practice for you to do if that's one of the problems that's leading to your, your poor sleep. That is such an amazing overview. And I so appreciate that. There's so many things that I can really pinpoint on that list that I am so culpable of every single night, keeping the TV on. My partner used to hate that because he has to sleep in complete darkness, but now he's used to it because I've slept with the TV on my entire life because I need like ambient light to kind of keep me calm. And then I stopped doing like my meditation music and like my sleep playlist on, you can find them on Spotify. They're amazing, but I have mine connected to my television and that's my, <laughs> that's my problem. So I think that, you know, just incorporating little small changes and maybe perhaps just putting it on our phone and, you know, locking our phone and allowing that to play or having an iHome or whatever is necessary can really be, can really play a role in helping us to get better sleep so that we're not constantly going through the same cyclical insanity. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of the, a lot of the um, apps have timers. So like you do the meditation, you set a timer and it will go automatically go off on its own. So there's nothing else you have to do. You don't have to hold your phone. You don't have to deal with the light. Also having the blue light filter on your phone, pretty much every phone comes with that now. So having that come on at a certain time can be helpful too for the times you do look at your phone. So yeah, I think it really is separating those things that are interfering with your sleep putting the things into practice that help you to relax and calm down and fall asleep easier. And then just being consistent. Consistency is key. That is really what teaches your mind how to connect all these things with falling asleep. It makes it easier every single night. Absolutely. If only we could take on this kind of like infant state of thinking when our babies are asleep, that's how they're able to grow. That's how they're able to, you know, complete cognitive processes and everything that they need to do. If only we thought that way, we put them to bed about the same time every night. Why can't we do the same things? Where do we make this disconnection in between being infants and toddlers and children to being these insane adults that like can't get our lives together? Exactly. You're so right. We have bedtime routines for them. It's a bad like We do all the right things. Um, and then somewhere along the line, we forget about it for ourselves. So you're absolutely right. We all need to go back to that more simpler state of being. And I think it will be so helpful. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge with the audience. It has been not only helpful for me, but I'm sure people are going to love hearing about like the tips and tricks about something that we literally need to function every day. So we appreciate you and you're welcome back anytime that you want to talk about anything sleep related or anything, you know, that you would like to talk about because it's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Time just flew by. Like I said, literally, I'm sure you can tell. I just like sleep gives me life uh, and I love talking about it and helping people with it. So absolutely. It was a great time and I'd be happy to come back at any time as well. Fantastic. And you're so amazing at it. So that becomes like a passion and like, you're actually good at it. So it's like, that's purpose that's being pulled together there. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the public health me podcast, and please get great quality sleep and take on better habits. And some of the tips and tricks that Dr. Holiday Bell has introduced during this episode that can really be meaningful in your daily routine. So thank you all so much. Take care, stay safe, stay well, and get great sleep.